We did look at the flood. Uh, we looked at the circumstances that brought about the flood. We looked at uh, God's provision uh, and even God's grace in the midst of the flood to save humanity through Noah and his family. And then we saw the covenant that God made with Noah that uh, he promised never to uh, strike down every living creature again, never to destroy the earth with a flood again. And he put uh, his rainbow in the sky as a sign of the covenant. Uh, now we're going to come down to verse number 18, and we are going to talk about Noah's descendants, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And this is going to set the scene for what we're going to talk about picking up in Genesis 12 and going through the rest of the Old Testament, especially when it comes to Israel as a nation and their dealings with the nations around them. So when you talk about Israel in Egypt, when you talk about Israel in the land of Canaan with the Canaanites and the the Jebusites, when, when you talk about Israel going into Babylonian captivity. All of these narratives that play out throughout the Old Testament with Israel's, uh, Israel's intermingling with the other nations has its origins here, beginning in Genesis chapter 9 and 10 and 11. So we kind of see the beginnings of these people groups, the beginnings of these nations, where they come from, why is there some of the hostility that, that we see played out in the rest of the Old Testament. So this kind of sets the tone, and when we get to the end of chapter 11, it's really going to flow very nicely into Genesis chapter 12 with the story of Abram. So what we've seen so far is we've seen what we've talked about as the wide scope. We've had the wide scope of creation, the wide scope of sin infecting humanity, the wide scope of the flood and the destruction of humanity. Now we're going to see the widespread of the birth of all of the nations of the earth and the spreading of all the nations on the earth. Then when we get to Genesis chapter 12, we're going to go from the wide scope to the very narrow scope as we, as we hone in on one man and one family. And that's going to take us through the rest of the journey of the Old Testament. And then what we see with the rest of the nations is when they come in contact with the nation of Israel, and uh, that's what's concerned there. So we've gone from world history, the history of creation, the history of man, the history of sin, the history of the nations. Now we're going to zero in on redemptive history when we get to Genesis chapter 12, and specifically God working out his plan of salvation um, for all of the nations and for all the peoples and for all the world, which would ultimately come through the seed of Abraham, which is Jesus Christ. So in uh, Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 29, we see the descendants of Noah. Uh, verse 18, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then it adds here, Ham was the father of Canaan, because that's going to play a role in what we're going to see. Uh, and these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So now we find out that from these all of the people of the earth came from and created the nations and that's when God separated the nations and divided them and sent them into their lands and how we got to the place where ultimately it was. Um, when we leave that brief statement in verse 18 and 19, we come into the story of, of Noah as 
a man who had gotten off the ark, seen God do amazing things. And it says in verse number 20, Noah began to be a man of the soul, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So Noah lived a long time after the flood, and the only incident that we have of his life after the flood is this incident here in his tent one night uh, when Noah had planted a vineyard and he drank of his wine until he became drunk and passed out. And this was the most righteous man uh, on all the earth that God saved. So I guess he threw a party for himself afterwards and uh, went a little too far. Uh, So we've got Noah becoming drunk and he lays uncovered in his tent. Then we have this unusual story, sometimes asking why is this story here uh, and what went on in this story. That's what we want to to look at here. So the first part of why is the story in in Genesis uh, of seemingly Ham's impropriety against his father. We do see some pictures here, some symbolism here, because it's amazing how sometimes similar things play out over all of the biblical narratives. Uh, First of all, just as Adam had three sons, Canaan, Abel, and Seth, uh, he had three sons. Two of them were good, Abel and Seth, and one was wicked, Cain. Noah here has three sons, Seemingly two good and one wicked. Uh, In both cases, Genesis traces the parting of the ways, showing how the chosen line through Abraham can be traced back through Shem and Seth. So when we have these narratives, of course, if you remember, we have the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman. We have Cain and Abel and the division there between uh, the sons of Seth, who was the righteous son after Abel, and then the unrighteous seed of of Cain. And we saw... uh, the lineage there that played on. And here we see a similar lineage as well. We see uh, two sons that were godly and did what was right in their father's eyes, and we see one that did not. Then we see their lineage and their heritage coming from them, and we see hostility between the two. Just as there was hostility previously, we see hostility here as well. So this story plays a major part in this overall theme of the narrative of Scripture. And then and in the life of Israel, and we're giving insight on why Israel and some of their neighbors have conflicts and the big deal with Israel and, and the Canaanites in the land. And it's traced back here, and Genesis establishes basically almost the, the political history between Israel and, and its neighboring nations stemming from here in Noah's family. Uh, so everybody kind of wants to focus on this next section. And that's what's going on in the story, what happened with Ham and, you know, and his father in the tent. So what's going on there? So what's going on in the story? Let's talk about that. Uh, the account of could possibly be, this account could possibly be akin to 
Adam's sin and the fall. Again, we see more similarities. What did God do in Genesis uh, chapter 1 and 2? In Genesis 2, he planted a garden and he put the man in the garden. And of course, uh, Adam and Eve were naked and they were not aware, or they were aware, they were not ashamed of their nakedness and their unawareness of their nakedness. But then their eyes were opened through the deception of the serpent. They became aware of their nakedness. Uh, their eyes were open, and curses proceeded from that. Well, here, even though it's not an exact, we see similarities. Um, we see Noah planting a vineyard, and he's put in a vineyard just as God planted a, a garden. Uh, here, Noah is uncovered, essentially naked, and he's not aware of his nakedness. But then Ham comes in, and he becomes aware of his father's nakedness. The other two sons come in, and they cover the nakedness, just as God covered nakedness of Adam and Eve. Um, we see here, and Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves as well. Uh, we see the other two sons covering their father. And then we see curses come from that. Ham is implicated in the curse, uh, not Noah, but it's Ham's descendant Canaan that experiences uh, the curse. So we see similarities with the planting of a, of a vineyard, with the nakedness, with the the sin, with the, the covering, with the curses. So we kind of see something very similar being played out here. But Ham comes into his father's tent. He sees his father passed out, uh, uncovered, naked. And it goes on to say in verse number uh, 22, And Ham saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers. His brothers come in and cover his father, their father, not looking upon him. But Noah wakes up and he knows what his youngest son had done and a curse begins to come forth out of that. So the question is, what did Ham do? And what did Ham do to elicit such a response from Noah, his father? And then why did Noah, his father, instead of specifically cursing Ham, curse Ham's son, Canaan? Well, let's look at the first issue. The first issue here is, you know, what happened with Ham. There's, you know... Four or five different opinions, again, we're not explicitly told in the text what has happened, so we can't say for certainty. Uh, the first option that we have, or the first suggestion that we have, is Ham dishonors his father by mocking his father's condition and then proclaiming it to his brothers. So probably a very natural reading of this is Ham comes into his father, and instead of covering his father uh, and protecting him, uh, he goes out and he tells his brothers, he proclaimed, thus dishonoring the father, either by simply not covering his father or by proclaiming it to other people or by essentially mocking the condition of his father. Uh, that would be a very simple reading of this. The other ones get a little more in-depth, details-oriented. Secondly, it's been speculated that uh, Ham possibly castrated his father in an attempt to usurp his position. Um, certainly, there have been instances of that in the ancient Near East. There are accounts of similar things like this happening, where a son tries to usurp the authority and the position of his father. Um, I would think Abraham would have been awake in the middle of that when that was happening, but uh, no, he was really out. Um, also, that should be number, my numbers got mixed up there because I put another number two in the midst of that. But number three should be another possibility or suggestion is Ham committed incest uh, with his mother in an attempt to usurp the authority from his father and took advantage 
of an ancestral relationship with his mother while his father was passed out. Uh, again, that would be in order to usurp authority. And then the last suggestion is that Ham was guilty of some sort of voyeurism or paternal incest in a homosexual type of nature. Uh, you can see Lot's daughters who get their father drunk and sleep with him. Uh, so yeah, yeah, the Bible has interesting stories in it, uh, which is why I was like, my daughter's like, yeah, I'm going to read my Bible. And I'm like, what part are you reading tonight? Uh, the Old Testament. Whoa, what, exactly what do you read? Uh, so there's a lot of interesting stories. Uh, again, these are suggestions that are made. We're not told for sure. So, and scholars are not in agreement on what exactly Ham's sin is. At least none that I read were aware of exactly what it is. But whichever way we interpret or whatever suggestion it might or might not be is irrelevant to the point of the story because that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is not to figure out what Ham did. The point of the story is what happens after Ham did what he did in the cursing that comes from Noah upon Ham's son, Canaan. Uh, the first question is, why wouldn't Noah curse Ham instead of Canaan? Um, this follows a category of what would be a patriarchal pronouncement. It's not unusual for the father to pronounce a blessing or a curse upon his children, uh, for the father to give a foreshadowing of what's going to happen, uh, which sons are going to be blessed and prosperous and rulers, and which sons are not going to be blessed. And So the, the indication here is not just Ham and his actions. It's what's going to happen later on in the story. It's what are Ham's descendants going to be like in relation to Shem and Japheth's descendants? What is the family dynamic going to be? And certainly it foreshadows, you know, what eventually happens in uh, the promised land, in Canaan itself. Um, so the concern here is really the future offspring of the family. What's going to happen in generations? That this hostility is going to happen generations. Uh, you know, it's, it's the same as... Uh, Isaac and, and Ishmael and that, and, you know, we're told in the future, you know, what's going to happen, you know, with those, the offspring of those two. And so we see these indications here. So it's a form of this patriarchal pronouncement uh, concerning the, off, the future offspring of the family and what role this offspring is going to play in the family. So in this case here, Canaan would become a servant of servants to his brother. For we're going to pick up the story of Israel when they go down to Egypt, and then when they come up out of Egypt and go into the promised land, the land of Canaan, with the Canaanites as well. So this is setting the stage for what's going to happen later on through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the children of Israel and the nations that are coming. And uh, it shows us some insight into that. So I believe that's really the main point. Um, so I'm not going to Again, spend a lot of time trying to figure out the details of what Ham did and all that because, again, that's not, I believe, the, the writer's purpose in telling the story. Um, but it is setting up to go into chapter 10. When we go into chapter 10, on the back of the first page is what is referred to as the table of nations. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 10 begins, These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons who were born after the flood. And in verses 2 through 5, we see here the sons of Japheth. Um, including Gomer, Magog, and the list goes on there. Uh, then in verse 6, we have the sons of Ham, uh, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Uh, in this, we see in verse number 8, the, uh, the birth of Nimrod as the son of 
Cush, who was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. Uh, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord um, and beginning of the kingdom of Babel. So there we see this uh, beginning there. So we have that note in verse number uh, 9 and 10. And then we go on to list all of the you know, descendants. Um, some of these are going to be you know, pretty familiar to us. Um, the land that went to Assyria. Um, and let's see, my eye just caught something that I wanted to say. Nineveh, we see Nineveh there. We see Egypt there. We see uh, where the Philistines come from, verse number 14. Uh, so these are interesting genealogies to go in and read because you're like, oh yeah, I, re- I, know, I know the Philistines. I remember that and David and Goliath and oh yeah, Egypt and you know Babel and Nimrod and all of this. So there's some interesting, and it gives the Canaanites were dispersed, the Canaanites in the land. Sodom and Gomorrah is mentioned here. So this really is kind of the setup to you know what's going to come about. And then verse 21, we see Shem and his descendants as well. So the table of nations classifies the nations of the known ancient world under the three sons of Noah. Um, And then we have here uh, a little chart on your paper. Uh, I know we all like little charts. Uh, And this may not be, you know, perfectly exact because I looked at about 10 different charts. This is the one I like the most. Some differ on kind of the exact location of some of these. But this will give you a general idea of where the descendants of Japheth uh, landed kind of in the northern section of Asia Minor. And then we see uh, the descendants of Ham, uh, kind of where they were in the, the area of Egypt going on to Canaan and kind of in that fertile crescent, uh, kind of in that area there uh, going over. And then we see kind of in the Arabian Desert in the northern and in the southern uh, Shem. So there's not a hard line of where the descendants landed, but this just kind of gives you an idea of, of these nations, who they were and where they dispersed to. And you'll see some you know, familiar names on there as well. So again, we're, we're setting up, you know, to give us this table of nations and how it will play a part in the story. Uh, when we come to Genesis chapter 11, and then I'll just make a mention in Genesis 10, the last verse in Genesis 10. Uh, these are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So this is the uh, population of the earth. Now the earth became populated with all of these nations. When we come into chapter 11, we have the Tower of uh, Babel. Uh, We find here, or Babel, however you want to pronounce that one, where Babylon would come from. Uh, Verse 11, I mean, verse 1 of chapter 11, the whole earth was of one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the sea, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, but human for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And they said, Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is the only beginning, this is only the beginning of what they will do. For nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. 
Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So this narrative can be divided into four scenes. The initial setting in the plains of Shinar and the first two verses, the human word to construct a city and a tower, verses 3 and 4. Uh, the divine word to deconstruct by confounding the speech in verses 5 through 7. And the final setting the nations scattered in verses 8 through 10. So there's a brief outline of those 10 verses or 9 verses there. Uh, the people who live in the land of Shinar resolve, let us build ourselves a city and the tower its top in the heavens and make a name for ourselves. Uh, the tower in chapter 11 highlights the pride and arrogant rebellion of humanity. So we're seeing a common theme over and over and over again. We see sin begin with Adam and Eve and their disobedience to God. And then we find uh, Cain and Abel, the first murder. We find violence grow from there until it fills the, the whole earth. We find the judgment of God come in the flood. We find Noah, who after sacrificing to God, he gets drunk in his tent and puts himself in a vulnerable position. We see the sin of Ham come in. Um, we see the curses that come from that. We see the earth populated again. And what do we see? We see the earth now sets itself against God in trying to build a tower to reach the heavens, to make a name for themselves and to do life without God. And then we see another kind of judgment. This judgment doesn't result in the death of everybody, but it does result in the separation of everybody. So we're really just kind of reading the same stories over and over again with the same uh, connotation that sin has consequences and that sin is in the heart of man. That's what we concluded last week with the flood. God flooded the earth because sin was in the heart of man. And then God says, I will not flood the earth again because sin is in the heart of man. And then we see sin in the heart of man again. And we see that man left to his own sinful nature will become corrupt with sin and will become in rebellion to God. So that's the whole purpose and the theme of these first 11 chapters in the book of Genesis. To show us how destructive sin is, how sin has consequences, and how it grows. And man is utterly helpless. Even when it seemed that we had a new beginning with Noah. You know, the earth was purified. God gave the earth a big old bath. And he's got the most righteous man on the earth and his family to save. And the hope was not in Noah and his family. We just see the continuation of what is in the heart of man. And man left to his own self will always try to live life void of God's will and God's guidance. So we see the pride and arrogancy of humanity, mankind building and creating independently from God. And we find God again confuses the languages and scatters the people. Um, the tower they were possibly building were, you know, the ziggurats of the ancient you know, world with the pyramids, the Babylonian temples. Uh, there's a picture of one below, a massive and lofty uh, staircase walked up to uh, the inside of it. Uh, it was in several parts of the city, and sometimes the temple complex was the city itself. Um, on the back of on our second page, the story answers the question, why people speak different languages, why the nations are scattered all over the earth, and also an explanation of the name of Babylon with 
Babel being the, the connotation there. Thematically, the story of the tower provides an apt conclusion to this phase of history as it reiterates the theme of human limitation and the dangers involving trying to be like God or to rise to the heavens. So we can be like God, we can rise to the heavens, we can build, we can create in the garden, eat this and you can be like God, knowing good and evil. And that is the human pride of man, trying to live independent of God or trying to absurd the authority of God by rebelling of God. And then we have a brief paragraph here about the important city of Mesopotamia was Babylon, um, came to mean the gate of God, but Genesis' account of the tower refuted the arrogant claim. The powerful city represented humanity's uh, unified rebellion against God and was therefore marked by confusion. So Genesis turns the rebellious gate of heaven into confusion of speech and the dispersion of humanity. In an interesting coincidence, the wordplay still works in English where Babel means to make incoherent sounds with a single international language and advanced building technology humanity was unified in rebellion but unification and peace are not the ultimate goods of society because they can result in pride and rebellion god's response again teaches that those who he created or that he created the universe and he continues to govern sovereignly in the affairs of humankind and the confusion and the spreading and then in an interesting note when you come to acts chapter 2 uh, in the context of the Jewish Feast of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, you find, we find the words, there were Jews that come to Pentecost from every nation under heaven, and they come to one place out of all the nations of the earth, and there in the supernatural gift of tongues, they heard them and speak in their own language. What God does on Pentecost is He brings the nations together, and instead of confounding their language, He unifies language again in one place, and they hear the gospel in their language. And they go back out into the nations of the world with the gospel. And thus, the gospel would be spread into all of the earth, bringing salvation and offering hope and forgiveness of sins into all of the world. So we've seen over and over again this problem of sin. Over and over again, this problem of people wanting to be like God, thinking they can live independent of God. We see over and over again the destructive forces of sin. We see over and over again, you know, God's having to bring judgment upon men. But now we're getting the glimmer of hope. After the story of the Tower of Babel in uh, verses 10 through 32, we have another genealogy. So you see how, you know, it's it's natural for all of us as Christians. I know it is for me. It has been for me. When I see a genealogy, just to be like, ah, skipping over that. <laughs> I mean, hey, who wants to read genealogies? But especially right here in, I mean, they are important. Now, there are, you know, and even like in Chronicles begins with a genealogy, but it's for a purpose. You know, it starts with, with Adam. It's taking Israel back to who they are, where they come from. Um, so the genealogies here are important to the story. So just as we saw the previous genealogy, what was it in chapter 5? We saw the descendants, uh, Adam's descendants to Noah. And Noah would be the one that God would choose to uh, bring salvation to the world or a new beginning to the world through preserving humanity. We saw 10 generations in chapter 5 leading to Noah uh, from Adam. And here we see basically the um, 10 generations as well. Uh, from Shem, beginning with Shem, going all the way down to 
Terah, and Terah would father a man named Abram. So here, here we have another genealogy mirroring the genealogy in, in chapter 5 with 10 generations here leading to another new beginning. And another, another new beginning here would be through Abram. So we have Shem leading all the way down to verse 26. Uh, Terah lived another 70 years and he fathered Abram. And then in verse 27, let's read this. And, and now these are the generations of Terah who fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife, uh, Milcah. And the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishka. And Sarai was barren and had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, son of Haran, and his grandson, Sarai's daughter-in-laws, his son Abram's wife, and they went together from Ur of the Chaldees, the Chaldeans, to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So we have the genealogy leading up to Abram, and then we have this more specific kind of history of Terah and his family, including Abraham and Sarah. So now we get the beginnings of what's going to be the narrative that we're going to follow on. We have Abram and Sarai, who was barren. And we're going to see in Genesis chapter 12 how that narrative is now focused. So at verse number 27, we've now focused in on where we settle in in the Scriptures. And that is on this history of redemption. This, again, tracing of a divine seed that would come upon the earth that would bring salvation. And um, so we're seeing this glimmer of hope. So we find here um, the redemptive history, that our last paragraph that begins here, however, will not come to fruition until its consummation in the son of Abraham, whose death and resurrection will provide ultimate victory over the sin and death that so soon disfigured God's good work. <clears throat> 